welcome to the Property Portfolio Podcast with Mark Stokes and Nigel Green. Every week we inspire and guide you towards success in the world of property development, mentorship and fundraising. Before we jump into today's episode, a reminder to join us at equacademy.co.uk where you can gain free access to hundreds of videos and templates to help you on your property development journey. I'm delighted to welcome our inspiring guest, Darren Grigas. Welcome, Darren. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. It's a real pleasure to invite you to Mercedes-Benz World, this inspirational venue where we're recording this, and uh, really looking forward to hearing more about your exploits. Okay, great. So maybe to start off with, for those who who maybe haven't heard about your exploits and, and what you're doing out there, could you just give a bit of background on who you are, where you come from? Uh, yeah, I'm from Peterborough, uh, just a, well, I consider myself pretty regular dad of two, and but in the last few years had a slight change of angle and started getting into my running and went above and beyond. I got up to half marathons and such and then just wanted something bigger. And after a few obstacle races and various mud runs, I wanted to look for something to really challenge and stand out uh, so it's just uh, different to the rest. And I saw, became aware of the Marathon de Sables, which I uh, saw a documentary on Discovery Channel with James Cracknell. And he'd run this, what was dubbed as the toughest foot race on earth. And I thought, well, I'll have a crack at that then. So uh, registered, got myself a place, which was lucky because there's only sort of a few, about 1,300 places that year, 50 different countries applying. And uh, suddenly my life really kind of changed from that day because I had to not just run, but had to become a runner, an ultra runner, and I had a very steep learning curve ahead of me. So how old were you when you first got that trigger into ultra running then? That was, would have been 2014 when I registered for that. So I've just turned 40, so I'm, <laughs> I'm backtracking <laughs> like day six, or about that. Yeah, so, and it was just a case of, I'd had a bit of... Um, Looking back, I kind of decided to draw a line under having too much hindsight of, oh, I wish I'd done that when I was young enough. I wish I could have done that. I should have, would have, could have. And I just thought, actually, I'm just going to sign up for this ridiculous challenge. And, yeah, and then a lot changed in the next uh, 46 weeks I had from then to go from a mediocre half-marathon runner to running six back-to-back marathons in the desert. And, and the, let's go back to the trigger. Why would somebody want to make that change from maybe being a, a casual runner up to half a marathon? Why would you want to step up to the insane distances? Was it was it just that half hour on the couch watching Discovery Channel or what was um, the drive? It was, well, I'd had prior to, I, I, at that point when I registered for that, I'd not long been running uh, other than prior, sort of in my teens, but I'd had a car accident uh, a few years prior to that. And I was about 33, 34, and it really twanged part of my back out, tore some tissue, muscle and stuff around my spine. And fortunately, a lot of physio and cortisone injections, all sorts for about a year, but I, it could have been a lot worse. And it was one of those moments of like a realization of your own mortality. And that just made me think, hold on, that could have been my time then, or lost the use of my legs. And I'm, while I've got them, I want to use them. I want to do something special whilst I can. So that kind of got me into running. It took a long time to build up to be able to do that half marathon. And then I just thought, I really enjoy this. And actually the few races I'd done, I wasn't winning anything, but I was pretty good. 
So I just wanted to achieve something for me that was pretty epic. I could look back um, and obviously after that accident, it was a reminder going, tomorrow's never really guaranteed. So I just thought I wanted at least one thing that I could look back when I'm older and go, I did that. And so, yeah, initially I registered for this ridiculous race just for for me, something I wanted to do. So as I've achieved that and I can tell my grandchildren, oh, I I at least did that. But um, then I also wanted to make myself accountable because it's quite a big thing to shy away from if it got difficult. And so I obviously told people I was doing it, not to gloat because I didn't even know if I hadn't even run one marathon, never mind six but also then I wanted to do, I thought I couldn't do something this big and not do it for, raise some money for a charity because people raise money for running a 10K or something. I'm, I'm doing this ridiculous race. I should do something. So, and there was a charity that really touched me that was a lo- local one to us called Anna's Hope. And they um, raised money. It was a couple. They lost their daughter to a brain tumor, sadly, just short of her fourth birthday. And then from that, they spent, they spent the last 10 years trying to help other families and children that are having their children recover, but then also learn to walk and talk again afterwards. They need a lot of treatment. And nobody it's not like a massive charity, so nobody gets paid. There's no directors. There's no commissions. It all goes where it needs to. And that, for me, just thought I can make this challenge way bigger than me, and it was way more important than me. And that suddenly made me so much more accountable I couldn't back out but I there was so much more good coming out of this and yeah so that became suddenly I'm doing this enormous challenge for an amazing cause and hopefully inspiring a few people along the way by sharing my story I think that's absolutely inspirational in itself picking such a meaningful um, cause there but also enabling that cause to help you to keep that accountability there so winding back then phenomenal challenge that Marathon Marathon of the Sands. Tell our audience about what that is, because many may not have heard of it. Many may not. Obviously, Mark, yourself, who know that you have, because just so as the audience know that Mark also did this race a couple of years before me, so he's no stranger to it. But it is pretty much, in short, it's around 156 miles across the Sahara, uh, staged over pretty much sort of six back-to-back marathons. Uh, Temperatures reaching up to about 50 degrees. You're self-sufficient, so you're carrying your own kit, food, water, uh, sleeping bag on your back. So pretty, I'd say around 10 kilos my stuff weighed. I was was lighter than some. So you've got 10 kilos on your back and a marathon a day for six days thereabouts. They do throw in a little cheeky fourth day. So the the first three days are approximately a marathon. The fourth day is then aptly named the long day. And for us, it was about 57 miles. So if you're not tired enough already after three marathons, throw in a 57 mile and then you finish off with a full marathon on the final day. So it's um, quite a slog. You're rationed food uh, it's only what's in your bag from day one so you if you want more food you've got more weight so there's a bit of a compromise there so i was surviving on around two to two and a half thousand calories a day but obviously running that distance in that heat you're burning five six seven thousand calories so you're immediately on a deficit and that's part of the challenge you're not running if you run a marathon you rest, you carb load, you get hydrated, and then you go and bang out your marathon four or five hours or whatever, and you're done. You go home and eat again and sleep in a bed. 
in this case, you don't. You sleep on a rug on the sand with a blanket on some sticks, uh, claiming to be a tent. And, uh, in the loosest sense. Of the yes, yeah. And uh, you go and if you need to go to the toilet, you go and find a rock or something. Yeah, you've got no home comforts. And then you've got to get up and do it all again after you've patched up your feet and tended to any wounds and things like that. It certainly draws a lot of... Uh lot of insight into your own mind and body that and your own mind mind frame reveals itself doesn't it um could you share with us the type of things that you've learned from that what do you learn about yourself oh learn yeah definitely learn a lot since that first obviously registering for that and then the journey of sort of 11 months or so of arriving at the desert learn that obviously when I first started, I was only doing a few miles a week. So I'd go out for a four mile run, a five mile run. But by the time it came around to arrive, uh, flying out there, I was regularly running 80 miles a week and going to the gym for like three, four circuits and a week as well. And it, yeah, so physically you learn that you're capable. You learn a lot about nutrition, hydration and how we work as machines. And as long, as long as you look after it, then your body can just keep on going. That's what we're, what we're meant to do at our sort of core. So you just got to change yourself and learn to feed your body, repair it. It's like you wouldn't, um, a lot of people will say, Oh, I couldn't run that far. I can only run a park run and I'm knackered after that. And I just think I find myself most commonly saying to people is just slow down. If you're running an ultra, you just slow down. If you're driving from, Scotland to Cornwall, you wouldn't belt it a hundred mile an hour all the way because your car would go pop. So you ease up, you drop a gear, and effectively, if you're doing an ultra, you, you're almost dropping down to second gear and just plodding along for hours and hours. It's it's a bit like a mobile picnic, I like to say, because <laughs> you're just constantly using fuel and putting it back in again. Being comfortable with your own thoughts? Yes, very comfortable. I mean, you can, I've gone through stages where sometimes I'd run and uh, it's a lot of time spent running and when you're training for things like that. But you, I've been through stages where I listened to music and then stopped for a number of years and just listened to the noises around you and the, the tweets and the birds. If, if you're out early, you get to be out there seeing the sunrise and it's amazing knowing that you're out there, you're, you've been out, you're 10 miles into a run, the sun's just peeking up and you get back home again in time for breakfast with everyone else that's just crawled out of bed and you've just been out and done 20 miles or or even a marathon I'd sometimes run a marathon before going to work and yeah it's just, you learn a lot about yourself your mental strength you have to overcome the doubts and the excuses which a lot of people will call reasons for not training because uh, they're there every day and I mean certainly you wanted to make progress week on week day after day and every day you get up and it's, you're tired, you're cold, you're aching, you're hungry, you don't want to run again. But you know that if you don't, then you're not going to be that one step closer to being at the level you want to be at. And you have to remind yourself of how am I going to feel if I do or I don't have this extra run or this extra gym session or whatever it might be leading towards your next goal. I mean, not even just running but I've kind of taken this and related it to and used it in other parts of what I'm doing whether it's for business or work or whatever I might be doing you um yeah you take that you just a lot of the time you really don't want it it's so easy just to sit down and throw yourself on the sofa and watch a bit of telly with everyone else but then you've got to go well hold on this isn't is this taking me towards or away from my goal so you have to 
yeah, you have to toy with your demons and uh, what's comfortable and what it actually takes to get closer to that next stage. It's, it certainly enables you to decide how badly you want that goal as well, doesn't it? Yeah. What, what you'll endure. Yeah, um, definitely. And, uh, yeah, so what did you endure? You mentioned your feet there and your, your health during during training as well as the event itself. Can you give our viewers some idea of what you had to go through to get to, to that prize goal? Yeah, well, this, um, I mean, I've gone through a lot since as well, to be honest. Uh, I was quite lucky I think quite lucky and sensible in my training towards the MDS, Marathon Disciples, that I didn't get massive issues with my feet. Uh, I know a lot of people and I met a lot of people on the way that were doing it. And when we're even out in the desert, a lot of people, their feet were in bits. It was horrible to see. I think I managed to get away with just a couple of blisters just because I wore the just one on my second toe on each foot. Just a little blister between the big toe and the next toe. That's pretty much all I got, and it weren't that bad either. I just managed my feet, right kit. Again, you learn along the way, and you it's trial and error, because I, I did go through I did get blisters during training, and then you think, right, oh, those shoes aren't quite right, or those socks aren't quite right, or is my gait off, my, what's up? So you, you learn as you go, and um, I think I was, to a degree, lucky. Maybe I were just little dainty little feet, I don't know. that. So I, yeah, I got away with that. Um, a few issues with when you're training to that degree there's a lot of wear and tear and so niggles with uh, knees ankles back aching um, struggling to sleep because you've got to find that whole balance of uh, getting it right because you you know sometimes I mean sometimes I'd be up I'd run 15 miles at night or something when everyone else is sat down to watch the x factor I'm just going right I'm just going to pop out quick half marathon be back in a bit and then up, I'm up again at seven to do a 20 or 30 miles. Yep. So I'll be doing back-to-back marathons or 30 miles over the weekends. And it's, it's, just, um, yeah, it's just getting used to that. And your body does go through a hell of a lot. But also a tough one like that particular scenario, just night and day, it's, it's a common question you'd always get asked is where do you find the time? Obviously, during that, I was full-time employed, got children, got a couple of properties to look after things like this and everyone's like well where do you find the time because it is a lot of time to to take up when you've always got well I've got to do this I've got this DIY I've got to fix that I've got to go over here I've got shopping to do and yeah uh, there's always something else that wants your time so I'd often just try and do most of it get up very early so like I say I'd get up sometimes half four in the morning and go out and run a marathon in blackness sun's coming up just as I'm coming back home in time and my kids are just getting up and we have breakfast and then they're like oh all right marathon done and it's only half eight yeah brilliant the whole day <laughs> yeah so it, it's but you find that time and i am um, i mean i worked out just that little bit of extra time say getting up early some people need to or believe they need more sleep than others there's uh i mean i'm all right i'm typically six hours six or seven seven's a light a nice nice long one Others might want eight or nine hours sleep or 10 or, and however, and I did a little works out and I said, thought, well, if you just get up one hour earlier, that gives you seven extra hours a, a week. And that, that equates, that total equates to, like, if you're chasing your goal, your business venture, your property venture, whatever it is that you might don't think you've got time of, time for you, then if you get up and uh, give that one hour committed to that one thing every day, that's the equivalent of, why is it 360 odd hours? Um, well, 365 hours a, 
year, yeah, yeah. which that backs down to the equivalent of, say, 30 12-hour days committed to your one thing. You imagine if you had 30 12-hour days just doing your one thing, your business, your project, your college work, whatever it might be, how much you can achieve. And you get that for free just by getting up an hour earlier. Great way to rationalise it. I absolutely love that. I had a, I still do to a certain extent, a weakness for snacking. So right. quite often I'd do my runs at around about that munchy time, about nine o'clock in the evening. Yeah. So I'd get me get me racing skates on about half past eight and go out for a hour, two hour, three hour run. Get back, have a shower, and I'll be back in bed by eleven midnight. And that way, I was losing calories rather than gaining calories. You know, snacking in front of the TV. Yeah, I like that. So just different ways. Um, so you know, the, the the abuse that you 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 prepared to put your body through. I was trying to rationalise it in my own mind. There are two types of pain: the pain that will take you out, dehydration, heat stroke, those yeah. sort of things, and then the the other types of pain which are mildly inconvenient. Some more than others. Yeah. Chafing, toenails. Yeah, a lot of inconveniences. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I remember um, uh, running again through, through the de- desert and uh, I had this pain and we, we were wearing gaiters, weren't we, to stop yep. sand coming in. And I had a pebble, a real sharp pebble, come through um, the base of my foot. So I had to stop and, and sort that out. And when I looked at it, it actually wasn't a pebble at all. It was my big toenail had come off and worked its way under my foot oh, no. and stuck straight in the bottom of my foot. Oh. <laughs> that was an interesting one. Crikey. So you didn't get to see Doc Trotters too often? Uh, I did go in to see them for that. I think that one, yeah, just it was that one blister that I had. And that was interesting because you lay there and it's like everybody laying on the floor with the feet in the air and it looks extra gory because they're putting this iodine stuff on that's red or pink anyway, yeah. isn't it? So it looks like they're just carving people's feet apart, but it just, yeah, all this colour splatting about. I just had them, yeah, I remember, it was just one toe that to sort. There was a bit of a rub had gone on. and uh, But some other people, wow. I saw that what amazed me, in fact, was is again you meet some amazing people on you go to a place like this out in one of these races you meet these people and the mindset of all of them they're there for their own reason their own cause whatever it might be i saw people come out of there and you no doubt you did self that were they'd have the little blue bags on their feet afterwards so they didn't get infected because they'd just been treated had the blisters cut and um i hope nobody's eating but um (laughs) and then people hobbling along and there was like guys that would take to walk the say 20 meters back to the camp or whatever it might be might take five minutes because the hobbling so bad and there's people you can see them going by and we're we're kind of almost from out from the comfort of our tents we're doing uh sort of uh dubbing over the top as we see people hobbling along and we're going oh and it takes some ages and some of them have picked up sticks and they're trying to help walk them way self along and under normal circumstances they're probably People would take a week off work. Couple. These guys were back on the start line again the next morning with having, those feet. Having jammed their feet back into yeah, their Yeah, and just squidged them in, taped them up, and as people come back, and there was some tell it saying that they could feel the blood squishing in the shoe, and you're like, whoa. But they'd be on that start line again, and that that's, that's something that special. That desire, that encountability. Yeah. And, you know, the grit, I guess. Yeah, grit. definitely. So that's the MDS, but yeah. you didn't stop there. After all that, when? no, um, yeah. Well, it kind of it that all wasn't a lesson. In yeah. That to you. Well, it kind of. Um, I mean, initially, like I say, I just I just registered for that 
to start with, that was something for me. I just thought, I want to do something that big. So at least I'll have one good story to tell when I'm an old man with my knackered knees. And, uh, but from off the back of Anna's Hope, the charity used that as a great uh, reason to do press releases. It grew great awareness for them. I was on uh, radio stations, BBC Look East uh, TV. They come and followed me doing my heat training and took part in some marathon studies, had some magazine, a five-page spread in uh, outdoor fitness and trail running magazine. So different, all these different things came off of it. And then I was invited to go and talk to people getting the Duke of Edinburgh Awards and stuff like that. Um, even invited to St. James's Palace. I was talking to the gold awardees alongside Prince Edward. And I'm like, wow, just all these things just spiraled that I never set out to sort of for these things to happen. But they did. And I'm like, well, of course. Do I want to do that? Of course I do. What an amazing opportunity. And and if people are being inspired by something I've done just by me sharing my story, for me it was just I could have quietly done this by myself and gone home, told my told the kids and told my mum and everyone's proud. Or it became so widespread that it in I kept getting messages of people saying, Oh, if you can do that, I can do this. I can do a park run. If you can do that, you've inspired me to do this. And that's so humbling. And it's suddenly went, Well, this is I felt a little bit obliged to keep doing more because people are were watching and they've watched my journey and my progression. And I think this is really such a rewarding thing that I've found something I can do that I love. It's raising awareness and funds for the for a great charity. It's inspiring other people around to better themselves. And the other thing, it's quite nice knowing when somebody there was one tag from an old schoolmate, and I'd not seen him. He's just a Facebook friend, but I'd not seen him for years. And he just tagged me in something saying, "I've been out and run what three and a half miles, inspired by Darren Gregus." And I was like, "Wow!" And the, the coolest thing is, I just like because I know how it feels when you are healthier fitter you have more energy you mentally it can make you feel like 10 times better and i know the knock-on effect of how that can impact him and therefore his wife and his children and their atmosphere in their home just because it, one little nudge to get someone to change their lifestyle and maybe stop having a beer every night or whatever it might have been and you can change someone's life just by that little bit of fitness, not taking responsibility for that, but it's like, wow, to play a little part in that, that's amazing. And all I did was share my story effectively. So I just wanted to make more stories and challenge myself again. And I, I pledged to Anna's Hope that I'll do, I'll aim to do one big thing a year to raise for them. You can't kind of fundraise all year long because it gets watered down. But then the, then the issue came of, when you've just done something that's dubbed as the been dubbed as the toughest foot race on earth, where do you go from there? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So I looked for other things to aim for that were on a par, or as I found since some things which I'd say were tougher, and, uh, and I'm still looking. And there's there's plenty of different things out there. So I've, I've uh, taken on quite a few various different events. Run the like race Hadrian's Wall, sixty nine miles. That's my a nice lovely day out to be fair um a big one the cape wrath ultra which was uh the entire length of scotland through the highlands and when you're running over all of scotland's mountains a total ascent of eleven thousand meters so like one and a quarter of everest 
that's pretty tough for a guy that's from Peterborough that lives in the Fens. Yeah. So I could do a 30-mile loop and the total ascent is about 200 feet. <laughs> and suddenly I'm going to run over all of Scotland's mountains. So that was... Um, How do you train for something like 11,000 metres? How many miles? Uh, 248 miles over eight days. How do you train for that, being in Fenland country? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, well, I did my miles on the, on the flats of the Fens. Um, I tried to get in the gym and the Stairmaster became my friend. So just to be on there, I didn't do nearly as much as I should have done. And so I was still on when the time came, I was definitely weaker on the climbs than a lot of people out there. And my camp, my naming camp was Flatlander, obviously. <laughs> so I'd kind of take off on the flats. And then when we got to the hills, people I've passed half an hour earlier come trudging past me with their solid damn them for living in the Lake District or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then it'd, I'd catch them up again um, later. So, yeah, that was really something awesome. And what was quite amusing about that whole thing was for... We're racing across Scotland, and obviously you expect, it was May time, you expect some Scottish weather where there were 95 people from 15 different countries come over from Philadelphia, Arizona, Australia, some hot places, coming to, ready to run across Scotland. Pretty much all of us got sunburned because we had a heat wave all week that followed us along and we weren't ready for it. We'd run across the Sahara and nobody got sunburned out there because yeah. we had all our sun cream. So we'd, uh, we got caught out there, but... Running across Scotland was incredible. The scenery that, yeah, it was so remote, the places we went to. That was amazing. And then, yeah, it keeps leading to more challenges. Did a desert, did mountains, entire countries. And then recently I got an invite to a slightly cooler climate in, um, by the guys that run the, uh, it's the rat race team. They do the rat race adventures, various obstacle races and such across the country. And they asked me, invited me to effectively be a guinea pig. They wanted to reach out into international events and we wanted to run a recce on the first of a series of bucket list events, as they call them. And this was to go to outer Mongolia to run across a ridiculously giant lake, um, run 100 miles across a frozen lake and temperatures dropping down to, well, they said minus 40, actually got a lot cooler than that. So that was an invitation that, obviously, for some people uh, like me, I just said, well, hell yeah, <laughs> let me book my flight. That's another story yeah. to tell you, Grant. Yeah. So, and you've only just come back only a few weeks ago, haven't you, from that? Yeah, we got back, uh, yeah, just about three weeks, two, three weeks ago, just got back. So come on, you said it was minus 40, a little bit cooler than that. Just tell us all about this amazing event in Mongolia, first, yeah. first of its kind in the world. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, to their knowledge, this had never been done. And so the, this lake is one of, I did a little bit of research, it's one of like 17 ancient lakes in the world and it's 2 million years old. It's 85 miles long, 22 miles wide at its widest point and 262 metres deep. It's quite a lot of water. <laughs> so, and from December, January through till March-ish, it freezes over and the locals love it when this happens because what would usually be a 24 to 48 hour drive to go from one end to the other around the mountains and such is now about a four or five hour drive because they create the ice becomes a motorway effectively not a very busy motorway but it suddenly uh smashes chunks off of their commutes mm -hmm. so we got out there 
It's a long old journey to get there. Fly, three flights to Moscow, Ulaanbaatar, which is the Mongolian capital, and then a little two-hour internal flight on a little 12-seater, which a little bit hairy. All these little experiences within the experience. We're in this tiny little plane and we're just looking out. And if you breathe, your breath, your breath freezes on the window so you can't see out again. You have to keep scraping it with a credit card. And we're flying over, low over these mountains that just go on and on and on. And you just realize how immense this place is. And, and Mongolia is, I mean, looking on the map, it's not far off the size of most of Europe but to get in total, yet there's only about 3 million people live in Mongolia. So it's very, uh, it's the least inhabited country, I believe, in the world. And yeah, so we arrived when we first set foot out of the airport. We said, right, let's see, let's go and see how cold this is then. Stepped outside and we were choking. It was like we'd had a pull on a big fat cigar or something. We couldn't, <laughs> and just couldn't breathe this stuff in. It was nuts. And um, you, obviously you, you adjust to it, get your scarf over and, it's kind of, I tried to liken it to, I was explaining to my daughter, try and explain how cold. So obviously you reach into your freezer to get some frozen peas out. That in your freezer is about minus 19, um, minus 20, something like that. And this was like 25 or 30 degrees colder than that. But I kind of said it's a bit like when you go, uh, the opposite extreme to when you go to get your food out of the oven and you forget and you bend down too quick and the heat hits your face and you've yeah. suddenly got, geez, where are my eyebrows? And you're worried that, that intensity of heat, but the other extreme, it's like hits you that hard. And it's, yeah, so it's, it's madness. But so we, I mean, you do it, you adjust to it. You got used to it, but you do have to cover and be really careful with your admin. Uh, unlike say in the Sahara, you just got to make sure you got your sun cream on and probably wear as little as possible to not overheat. Yeah. Here, you've got to you've got to be completely covered, but um, not too hot when you want to start running because if because sweat is bad. If you sweat, then that's inside your clothes and it can freeze inside your clothes. So suddenly you're wearing ice, and yeah, and you feel it down, sort of running down the sides, or and then it freezes up, and you just. I took my jacket off and I'm shaking snow out from inside my jacket. Um, it, it, I got to do, I was lucky enough to do, um, and if, I don't know, you may have seen on my Instagram, where you can get the cup of hot water. I did. And so we got the cup of hot water, threw it up in the air, and barely any of it came down. It, most of it just disappeared into a puff of frosty snow. snow. Yeah. yeah. And it was awesome. We had a few guys at that. It was brilliant. And then Ali, one of the girls, um, she stepped outside with a bottle of water to brush her teeth. This is when we're in camp. You've got to sort of go outside to do stuff. So steps outside with a bottle of water like this, brushed her teeth, 90 seconds, a couple of minutes later, went to put the lid back on. She couldn't, the bottle of first started freezing up <laughs> just in the time it took to brush her teeth. Incredible. So how long did you have to acclimatise when you got off the little plane to when you towed the start line for the race? Yeah, we arrived, well, we got off the little plane and the next step was we had to drive about 100 kilometres from where we got there uh, across the lake so we're driving in convoy on the frozen lake which was How to start with ice the ice they they check it sort of every but only about every 10 kilometers apparently so just to check the thickness and it ranges from about 60 centimeters up to sort of meter and a half something like that but apparently i don't quote me, but it's roughly something like about, if the ice is about 25 centimetres thick, that's enough to drive on. So that's surprising. Pretty yeah. tough stuff. So Because it's tougher than concrete, in fact. Yeah. 
Um, and you got run on this. So and we were running. So, so it's is about traction. Yeah, traction. So we yeah, had to do a lot of research going, hold on, this is ice. But oddly, as we learn out there, there's not just one type of ice. There's so many variations. On one lake, there's just sheet ice where it looks like glass. There's stuff and it freezes because it's so cold. It freezes as it's in waves and ripples. So you're looking at stuff, especially when we're driving across it to start with to get to our start point. And it just looks like that's not ice. That is just water. You're like, but it's not. It's just fro- and it looks like ripples, looks like a lake. And it's and then the bits when it's snow covered, you're like, OK, that's definitely ice. And then there's jaggedy bits. There's bits that look like big jellyfish and freezes in big circles or like lily pads. You could hop from one to the next. It's bizarre how many variations there are. And obviously, it's what the lake's doing and the wind is doing and there's trenches. And the most exciting bit, well, I'd say exciting, is that the ice is still growing. So as the day warms, it shifts. And it's, bear in mind, this lake's like 20 miles wide, 80-odd miles long. It moves like tectonic plates would. So it shifts and sometimes it will squish together and all come up like little mountains. And then other times it will part. So you'll have this immense fault line where there's actually like a two foot gap and that's the water, 260 <laughs> odd metres of depth below. It starts to freeze over, but it's all very well if you're running, you can jump across that bit. But we were driving in convoy, so um, and there was like horse and slayers and things like that. And so they'd have to stop, assess it, and then they'd make it, we'd drive along the fault line, uh, along this trench basically, uh, until there's a narrower part and then they'd make, we'd all get out and then the Mongolians would just go back take a big run up and just belt it over and jump, the, jump this gap so this was support, the whole race was supported by the indigenous population was it? yeah so there's a there's a a chap who's out man on the ground effectively this chap David Scott he uh, runs a company called Sandbaggers and they do stuff he's, he's been back and forth to Mongolia and kind of kind of a key member binding the Mongolian British embassies as well and he was great. And then he's got his local, there's Mongolians there and they were our support crew. Most of them didn't speak any English. A couple of them did, but they were amazing. And yeah, such amazing, humble people and so giving and selfless. And and they were excited that these Westerners, there's some actual Westerners doing something tough because uh, they're, they're like real, the Mongolians are just, uh, I mean, male and female have their equal, equal rights basically, but there's alpha males and there's alpha females. And so they have real life. They were to sit at a meal and there was politicians, police commissioners, and then a wrestling champion. Wrestling champion gets the head of the table because he's a man. And it's uh, so it was good to, that they were actually impressed by us sort of uh, skinny Westerners just trotting along doing something ridiculous. And they were like really chuffed to be part of it. So they were great. Right. And you did it? We did, yeah. We set off. Um, so over three days, I mean, this was, it, it, we didn't know what to expect. So we were kind of experimenting to see how what worked, what didn't. We had different kit, we had different spikes on our shoes. Uh, I got some shoes, some really nice uh, Salomon speed, speed Spike, bought them especially, and they were good. But I ended up wearing some other ones where you get strap-on spikes to the bottom of your existing shoes that I've been training in, and they just gripped a lot better. So I just went with them, which was bonus because I had the comfort of the shoes I was used to. And you're just going along, and it's kind of like how football boots will dig into wet mud. You just get that much grip. 
and yeah, covered it. The first day was pretty much a marathon. I just went off at my natural pace and there were only eight of us doing this. Um, and obviously our support crew, Mongolian dude in his uh, horse and sleigh up the front with me. And yeah, it's just, I just tried it out and five, about five hours and I was done. So it weren't, that was my first day. And this guy said, wave me off to shore and they'd set up the camp on the side. And, uh, then the rest followed in and we changed, we got the bonfire set up. And part of the adventure wasn't just the running across the ice. It was the, obviously when that was done, I'd just run for five hours. I still had another, <laughs> another like 19 hours to get through. And it's still mine. I mean, it was minus 47 when we started that morning and you try and underdress a little bit as well. So like I say, you don't sweat too much, but we got to the end of the day. I've still got the rest of the evening. I've got to quickly get changed. And even when you're inside the, the girl, which like a, a yurt, yeah. they set up and there's a wood burner. Unless you're within two feet of the wood burner, you are freezing cold. So you've got to get changed as quick as you can and put all your warm stuff on and then get by the bonfire. And that evening, like the evenings, the Mongolians, they'd gone out and they'd already pre-hunted our dinner. So that first night we had wild boar and some vegetables and such that they'd put together. And the, it was just an amazing thing, sat around this bonfire. It's minus 50 by night. I was sat there, it was so cold. I sat, my, the toes of my boots were bubbling because I was trying to get close to it. My face, the front of my face was burning hot, but, but my ears were painfully cold and the back of my neck was covered in ice. And even, even though my face was hot, there was a little log across the fire that must have been blocking the direct heat. And I had ice on my beard, even though my face was baking hot. And that's how cold it is. And we, we were sat eating, eating our wild boar. Mongolians are singing their songs. The Scotsmen are singing their songs. Brits sing some nonsense that we tried to manage to do. In the tree line around us, all the wolves were howling. And we're like, wow, this is like being in a film. <laughs> this is real. And we're just right on the edge of this giant lake. And I'm like, this is so amazing. It's a re real privilege to see a part of our beautiful planet that sadly many people will never experience in their lives. Yeah, definitely. And just the, the kind of, um, the like I say, the experiences within the experience just amaze me every little bit. We never tired of the ice because you're just constantly going, wow. You're just looking at, wow. And you could, the ice would, with the ice expanding, you're on it and you hear it all around just creaking and cracking and in the distance, thundering it's like as if there's two big haulage containers being banged together in the distance and it's a more mighty boom just coming through and under your feet and i see it i did on the third day had a crack just like lightning just shoot between my legs and i was like yes because <laughs> you kind of get you you're not intimidated by it. you know the ice isn't going to go anywhere and then um another amazing part was on the second night we camped on the island in the middle and uh that island incidentally with the horizon um, from day one, we could see the island, even though it's 50 miles away and it's so flat and you can, you just run in for two days, marathon the next day, another marathon distance. And it's not until the last couple of miles that that island starts to get bigger. So it's just, and the same, you look either side and you can see the shoreline and the mountains are surrounded by mountains and uh, you can see the shoreline. It looks like it's, oh, it's maybe half a, half a mile or something away, but it's like 10 miles in each direction. And it's just, odd to kind of and you got this the ice thundering we camped we eventually reached that island and there's still there's the mongolians that live that live around the lake there's some in the urbanized areas like before we got that two hour flight 
But then up in the mountains, there's still some nomadic Mongolians who still live in teepees, just as like probably back in Genghis Khan era, and still live in the old ways. One of them, a shaman, came down to see us and to bless our journey, basically. And so we're around the bonfire. This night we're eating reindeer and, and haggis because it was Burns night. <laughs> so, and on this island and this shaman is going on a spiritual journey after I think she had a little sniff of something out of a bag, but she went on a crazy spiritual blessing. For about half an hour, we're watching jaws dropped as she's howling, singing, speaking in tongues. She spun so frantically and collapsed. She fell in the fire, in the bonfire. The guys quickly grabbed her out. A headpiece was on fire. She didn't even flinch. They just put her, they patted her down. And then she carried on banging a drum and singing. And, for, and we're like, wow. It just, it's, yeah. it's incredible, isn't it? If you think um, most of society measures value in terms of material goods, and I, I can't think of anything that, you could physically, any one of us could physically buy out there that would enable us to talk as passionately in 10 years' time as you're passionately talking about this experience. Yeah, no, um, too right. Yeah, stuff is just stuff, isn't it? Yeah. You buy it, you buy it, and then you sell it a few, you get sell it a few years later for a hundredth of the price, or you just give it away or stick it in a charity. It's just stuff. But these things, that, that's another reason why doing these races, these events and these challenges, it just takes you out and away from all of that. You've got a bonus is when you've got no phone signal and you're like, awesome. Present in the moment. Yeah, you're there. That scorpion in the desert or that beautiful Scottish countryside. Yeah, or- yeah just like halfway up. Um, I mean, in, when I did Scotland, one, one of the days we went off track and... Ended up spending about an hour going up the wrong mountain, me and one other guy. And uh, just at the top, there was this big stag just looking down on us. And he was probably thinking, guys, everyone else has gone Can't the other way. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing coming up here? The other's gone that way. I think that's what the stag was trying to say. But you're there and just away from all this like nonsense that we have and that people put a fake value on. Oh, I need the latest Chanel bag or whatever. Ah, oh, it's just a bag. Getting close to nature out there and... One thing that I was really inspired and always have been with the the ultramarathon running community is is the the friendliness. The um, you know, I guess the saying you're only competing with what you're capable of. And for ninety percent of people who do ultramarathon running, is they just want to be better, don't they? Yeah, um, yeah. But as I mean, same my um, girlfriend found she noticed that since I got into this the last few years, she uh, she's from a horse she's always had a horse and she's a horsey girl and said that kind of in her experiences are people kind of looking at if you've got the right boot the, the expensive boots and found a lot of that certainly in competitions and found it a bit snooty in some places and uh, she um, since coming along with me and supporting or taking part sometimes in some of these events she's just said it's amazing how everybody no matter what level you're at top or bottom slowest fastest everyone supports everyone and says oh, well done and great great stuff and yeah it's 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 awesome because everyone's there you kind of appreciate that you've all started somewhere I, i'm still i'm humbled even after what i've done i'm humbled and inspired by somebody who's just run their first park run i'm like fair play that's awesome incredible my, my first ultra was probably about eight years ago and it was a, a 50 miler and I was having a, a cup of tea about half an hour before the start line. And this guy, scruffy, sweaty, splattered in mud, turned up and joined the queue behind me. I said, you, you all right there? He said, uh, he said, yeah. So I just had a bit of a trot. And uh, I said, oh, where you come from? He said, oh, I come from the finishing line. 
I parked up there last night and I've just run the 50 overnight. <laughs> and, um, and now I'm going to run back and get my car. Printing <laughs> <laughs> the 50 into a century. Wow. It's been an absolute privilege to to, to have you on the, the podcast. And generally, I think you've, been, you've certainly inspired me and I'm sure you've inspired every one of our audience. And I'm sure people would love to know a bit more about you and follow your just absolutely amazing transformational exploits. So how, how can people get hold of you and uh, follow your journey? Well, I guess social media is the first stop, isn't it, always? And the bonus is... I guess I think as far as I know from Googling, I'm the only Darren Grigas. So that makes it very easy. If it's G-R-I-G-A-S, then uh, so or Instagram, obviously great for pictures. So I'm just at D Grigas. And uh, I think similar on Twitter. I forget what I even am. Yeah. But one of those. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Then. Yeah, find me on those. And just if, if I, I get a lot of people, even had a mate, old school mate, drop me a message last night and almost well, apologetic saying, sorry, you probably get this all the time, but I've got this has happened with my leg and I'm trying to train for the London Marathon and asking for advice. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I love, I'm humbled by, that people are asking me this. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And it's nice to be part of their journey if I can help in any way. So, yeah, feel free just to drop me a message if you're training for anything ridiculous or big or small. Brilliant. So maybe to close, is there just one piece of advice you could give somebody who wants to push themselves and, and maybe try something different? Um, one bit of advice. <laughs> um, I'd say I had a nice piece of advice when I was in did the marathon subbles a bonus was I one of my tent mates was Sir Ranulph Fiennes which is a nice little cherry on top mm. for those that don't know he's recognised as the world's greatest living explorer having done North Pole South Pole Everest Inca tribes and all sorts he's done I asked him about when he conquered Everest when he finally climbed Everest got to the top on his third attempt because weather got the better of them the first two times he was 65 years old when he got to the top oldest Brit that had ever done it at that point and I asked him about that and uh, how was it how was it was it tough going obviously you're a bit of an old dog and um, we we're on good terms we we're sharing a tent for eight days and uh, he just he's very blase he says well you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and that as uh, the amount of times not just running but every other thing like business or whatever I just thought well that's that's it you might have a little trip now and again. You might stumble, might get tired legs, but just keep putting one foot in front of the other and you'll get there. You'll keep going forwards. Thank you for listening to the Property Portfolio Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that it inspired you on the next leg of your journey. If you've got any questions or comments, why not reach out to us at our Facebook page, Equa Academy. Also, don't forget to register for free access to hundreds of property development videos and templates over at equacademy.co.uk and we'll see you in next week's episode. Thank you.